0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. We've got an extra special episode for you today. It's going to be all about concussion talk about it we've got the ceo of the concussion legacy foundation dr chris nowinski who many of you may know he's had an amazing life with a lot of very different experiences played american football at harvard he was a professional wrestler with the wwe Uh, had his career finished by concussion Um, and in the years since has dedicated his life to developing understanding and education around concussion um it really is an amazing story I, i hope people learn a lot from it um and enjoy listening to chris we obviously we ignore the specifics of the raul jimenez um and david luis incident from a few days ago just because um that would make it time specific we want this to be a, a more general you know, conversation and something which people can hopefully call back to as and when but um, i hope it's useful uh, and uh here's chris <music> Thank you so, so much for joining us. i I know that there'll be people listening who who know you know who you are and know about your personal journey, but it's probably worth
2: running through it again. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite a linear path. It's not traditional. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. So yeah, so I had a good time playing a lot of American football and bashing my head and and took a regular job in actually in the healthcare world, but got scared of being in a cubicle. And uh, <laughs> this opportunity opened up to give professional wrestling a try. And having done sports and theater, I, 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 being a fan, I went for it and had a blast and had a lot of success very quickly. And it was on Monday Night Raw, you know, w- within a year and a half of my first day in the ring. Uh, but unfortunately, what comes with that lack of an experience, or that lack of experience, was uh, a few too many concussions, and I had to retire from post-concussion syndrome. Uh, Two thousand three. It's quite difficult to, because um,
1: obviously we live in a kind of a a post-awareness world where people understand concussion in a different way to to how they did when I was growing up. Certainly, I'm thirty six now, and uh, you know when I was when I was a teenager, when I was younger, having a concussion was almost like a, a badge of honor. It was a well, I played hard, I you know got my bell rung, and I you know played on again. When you were growing up, did you have the same mentality when you were playing American football? Was it just a a thing that happened to you, and then you moved on. Were you unaware of the kind of the, the potential permanence of brain injuries in
2: that regard? I was completely unaware. I mean, really, the the moment of my awakening was when I saw Dr. Robert Cantu, who I eventually co-founded the Concussion Legacy Foundation with. He was the eighth doctor that was trying to fix me so I could get back to work. And he was the first one to explain to me actually what a concussion was. You know, he asked me how many concussions you had, and my answer was zero. And he said, well, how many times have you been in the head and you saw stars, or you forgot where you were, you blacked out? And I was like, that happens all the time. That's just normal playing football. And he goes, now that, that's a concussion by another name. And, and so we, I had a huge history and and then he was the first person to tell me i should have taken time off after each one (laughs) and he said and explained the 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 consequence of being reckless for for 20 years is what i was dealing with and and i was just blown away that all the crazy things i had been doing that nobody had sat me down and said by the way you can really ruin your brain (laughs) if you if you don't do this right and so that's really what sparked the the idea that, that we need to change things. And, and the first idea was, well, I'm going to take what Doc told me and write a book about it, combine it with the science, combine it with all these other people I started learning about who had the same story, and we'll break through this culture war uh the book itself didn't do it but what i learned there uh, really helped us uh, change the culture And, and really what helped stem the tide when we started the foundation was around the studying uh the brains of athletes when they pass away concussions have flown under the radar forever because they're an invisible injury but when i started learning about chronic traumatic encephalopathy cte this brain disease that that you can actually see uh, I realized that's what would help connect the dots for people that there were consequences to these things, and so started the foundation, partnered with Boston University, started a brain bank, and, and we've been off to the races.
1: Is it hard? Did you uh, did you go on a, a personal journey yourself when you? Um, I think I'm right in saying that you suffered uh, post concussion symptoms uh, for about a year after a wrestling injury.
2: <laughs> no, 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 I still have them.
1: But I mean, before you'd made the decision to retire full time. Oh, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was it quite difficult? Because um, if you've grown up in a culture whereby uh, getting hit on the head is just it's part of the job description. And also you've risen to a point where um, you're living a little bit of a dream and you're living at that stage of your life. You're on TV. You're presumably earning very decent money. You've reached um, the the summit of one particular profession. Is it difficult to? To accept what a doctor tells you about um, a nation of science, like well, not nation of science, but a something which doesn't exist in the public domain, like that. It's a well, I'm going to I'm going to keep hold of my dream, so to speak. Is that is that difficult to come to terms with?
2: No. <laughs> no. I mean, it was disappointing to lose my career, but, but the, the, what, what I said was, I, I, I cut it off before the doctors. I said, uh, you know, my, my head hurt so much for a year and my life was so miserable that I thought, if I can just get my health back, I'm not going to squander it again. I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I got better, went back to wrestling and then found myself in this situation, but now it was longer or now it was permanent. Uh, you know, I, 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 quickly recognized the value of brain health and I, I, I changed from the guy who took every risk and, you know, go ahead and hit me in the head with that chair and I'll jump through that table to you ain't touching my head ever again. I am this, is, you know, your brain is too important.
1: What was the reaction like? Because I, uh, I don't know an awful lot about professional wrestling, but I imagine a uh, fairly alpha male culture, certainly back then when you made the announcement that you're retiring because of a head injury. What was the response from your peers?
2: <laughs> Mixed, to say yeah. the, best, to say the yeah. least. I mean, you know, there are some really great people in that world who knew me and trusted me and realized if I wasn't willing to go back, it must be something serious. But there are also people who, like, if I was in, showed up to the locker room, you know, f- to say hello to people, um, would openly confront me and accused me of stealing a check from the company and not being willing to work. And, you know, that was hard, but, um, that was at the world's understanding back in 2003, 2004. And I, I probably would have been that guy had I not gone through this.
1: You mean a kind of guy who's like, oh, tough it out, Chris, get on with it. You know, you know, take an anvil or something, you know, like.
2: I remember in college learning about a teammate having a concussion and, and wondering why he couldn't play. I'm like, so what? So you got knocked out, like suck it up. <laughs> and like, I, I, I didn't, yeah, I did not have, I didn't, wasn't educated. I did not have patience with people. I did not treat the concussed people well. Let's move on to the scientific side of things. Cause this
1: is a really interesting point. When I was younger, Concussion was associated with being knocked out. I mean, unconscious. It was a very, it was a very binary situation. So periodically would happen at school. Someone would, you know, clash of heads or whatever, and they would actually be unconscious for a period of time. The idea that you could sustain a concussion um, through something more mild or just uh, a an incident which left you feeling left you seeing stars or feeling dizzy. This was kind of new news to me. So what is what is a concussion? What, what happens to your brain when it's being
2: concussed? So there are a lot of definitions for concussion, but it's, it, you can call it an alteration in mental function after uh, a force to the brain. So it, you don't have to be hit in the head, but if your brain twists or moves violently, you get a whole lot of things happening. Uh, one is you, you can stretch axons, nerve cells, and you get chemical and metabolic changes to how they function. And so they, they they start malfunctioning. They don't they can't operate together like they usually do. You also get physical injury to the brain in many cases, and so you're actually tearing axons. Um, killing brain cells, and so your brain needs time to recover and work around the damaged tissue. But essentially, uh, it's like you tear a muscle and your muscle doesn't work anymore. You know, you, you, Your brain has long, thin connections too that you can tear and, and, and it'll change how your brain functions
1: and what should happen after someone sustains a concussion. What's a, what's the appropriate response and time period for recovery?
2: So that's changed even since I started doing this work, you know, so when we were athletes, it was as soon as you wake up, you're good to go back. Then there was a swing to, you need to shut it down and, and sit in a dark room till you feel better. We realized that wasn't a good idea. So now we're, we're in a, uh, shut it down for 24 to 48 hours uh and then try to start getting back to normal life but don't put yourself in risky positions again uh until you know weeks later and probably in the u.s it's until you've been cleared by a doctor to go back to sports or take risks don't exercise hard you know go for walks but but don't do anything aggressive you know again until you're a little further away from the actual injury and don't do anything that provokes symptoms because if you're you know, like I, I used to go to the, when I was hurt in 2003, like one of the ridiculous things I remember doing was I would go to the gym to try to stay in shape after we finally identified my concussion, I, which I lied about for five weeks and I wrestled for five weeks and I worked out for five weeks and I knew that I couldn't complete a workout. I couldn't grab weights and do reps without suddenly getting nauseous in the room spinning. And I never thought that that was a reason to stop. I thought, okay, if I only went 20 minutes today, I'm gonna to come back and do half an hour tomorrow. And I just did all this additional damage to my brain because I was not educated. During that five-week period, aside
1: from when you were in the gym and, and essentially overloading a system,
2: what else were you experiencing physically or mentally even? So, so I had throbbing headaches most of my waking hours. And that was the most noticeable thing. I also, got i guess i would say uh, felt very strange and even got a little confused when i would get my heart rate up so i remember like walking upstairs would make me feel really weird Um, i was having trouble remembering things and so there's actually a uh, the for the first time and the only time in my career uh, on tape during a live broadcast i forgot my lines i just could not remember what came next and i had another one of my last matches, I remember telling the guys before we went out there in a tag team match, I'm having trouble remembering the finish. So if I forget, just, you know, do, do something else. And I was aware that I couldn't remember, but I didn't know it meant anything. Um, and then the thing that really, that made me be honest about how bad things were, (laughs) I was covering those were like subtle things I was telling people was I developed REM behavior disorder with REM meaning rapid eye movement, uh, is REM. When you're sleeping and you're dreaming, you get rapid eye movement. When you dream, your brain shuts off the motor functions to your body in the sense that you can't get up and run around. That's why you don't act out your dreams. You, you can, you, you, your arms and legs are supposed to be still. Well, that part of my brain essentially broke. And so it's now my body was awake when I was dreaming. And the reason, the, the, the reason I came to the a Monday Night Raw and, and, and found, I remember telling Stephanie McMahon, like, look, this happened to me last night and I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. And I think there's probably something wrong with me was that I, I acted out a dream and I remember the dream vividly enough that I was climbing something and I needed to jump in the dream. And I found out I had jumped off of a bed through a nightstand.
0: That's
2: and even terrifying. That That's collision <laughs> didn't wake me up for about another minute. And so, uh, and that, then that continues to happen and it's, it's much, it's, it's never really gone away. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a healthy thing to have, but that that's what it took.
1: You know, what frightens me about that story is when you're describing the fact that you can't remember how a match is supposed to finish and you're telling other wrestlers that it's kind of, it doesn't serve as a red flag.
2: That's (laughs) quite strange today to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, none of us knew.
1: One of the, the terms that's kind of crept into English sport, and we are behind the US because we just are. Um, that's, that's very, very obvious. Um, one of the terms that's crept in is a head injury assessment, concussion test. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about it because in rugby union, for instance, um, a player who's having an HIA leaves the field, returns maybe 10, 15 minutes later, um, and is either passed or, or not. In football, it still seems to be the case that it can happen in seconds. It can be decided that a player is is fit to continue. You know, he may have you know blood coming from his head or he may have you know he may look dizzy or whatever. What should happen? What what is what is being done to determine whether a a concussion has taken place and b it's safe for a player to continue? Because um, in the situation that you describe in that five-week period, you must be incredibly vulnerable. If you suffer another very serious head injury then um presumably the, the the consequences are potentially
2: dire well that 's sort of the the difference is that had I recognized that concussion at the beginning of those five weeks i 'd probably still be wrestling today, yeah. but you know five weeks of additional trauma uh, you know made it made things you know unrepairable, so what should happen so that <laughs> The 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 head injury assessments, the sideline assessments, the in game assessments. This is a very critical area, and it's it's as much a medical area as it is an ethical area. So we don't have an objective test for when you've had a concussion. Okay. Right. So we rely on uh, the the pa- patient report of what they're feeling, plus uh, some very rudimentary evaluations of their cognition, their balance and some motor function and some, some neurological signs. And we've sort of made a deal with the devil that, well, we, we need to figure this out pretty quickly because this is sports and you got to get back out there if you're healthy. And so there are these sort of time limits or time minimums and, and we, we rush it in the real world. You know, if we're talking about kids like the moment you think they have a concussion because we can't be sure they shouldn't ever go back in because the risk of going back in is that you can die from second impact syndrome yeah. or you, your life is permanently altered by suffering additional brain injury like mine was. And so you, you, you don't want to send someone back who's concussed, but then the, at the pro level, the athletes really don't want to be held out when they're healthy because you know, that can cost them, in the eyes of their their managers, it costs them in future salary negotiations. They may not seem trustworthy or tough, right? So, so we want to get it right. And so, the way we've worked it out in in some sports, but every sport does it differently, is that you the moment you uh, suspect a concussion and there's basically a list of signs that someone would show like they they they're slow to get up they're holding their head they they stumble they forget the plays they go to the wrong sideline after hit um you you pull them out and evaluate them the first place this is misused and abused is that if you get hit in the head and you show those signs most of those signs it's a it's a you shouldn't go back no matter how you do it in, in a in a sideline assessment over the next 10 minutes because it's very clear you had a concussion yeah. even if the symptoms only lasted 30 seconds right if you get up and you fall over or if you clash heads and you lie on your side not moving for five minutes which recently <laughs> happened yeah. there's no way you should be going back in all right that's that's the that's the, that's you know again my opinion as somebody who's who's, who's worried about these these athletes and then once you decide to run the assessment, let's say you have a gray sign. Um, You know, somebody did forget a play after a hard hit, but they sometimes all forget plays. You pull them out and you do this assessment and then you pass or you fail, right? And the fail means that you've shown some obvious sign and that you definitely have a concussion. The pass means you aren't showing signs right now. And the risk of returning anybody to, to play in the middle of a game is that very frequently, and in fact in most cases, symptoms are delayed. What you feel five minutes after the injury is not what you're going to feel half an hour after the injury, after the adrenaline's worn off, after, you know, your body has a response to the trauma that's going to cause, that when you get hit hard enough uh, to have a concussion, right? Again, you get that big burst of adrenaline, it's a survival mechanism, and so you're not going to feel the pain that you're going to feel 10 minutes later. And so uh, we, we all know this. And so uh, very frequently in the NFL uh, in America, players will pass the sideline assessment, finish the game, and after the game, like, oops, they did have a concussion. But the sideline assessments there is their sort of legal cover. It's their agreement that, well, we can be wrong sometimes, but there's a system through which we're allowing ourselves to be wrong. The other aspect of, of sideline assessments is time, right? So it, it, to, to, to fully evaluate Cognition and especially what can be sensitive to concussion is delayed cognition. So I tell you something now, can you remember it five or 10 minutes later? You need time to forget. And, um, right. if you, so we, as a, at the concussion legacy foundation, you know, we're very firm that nobody should no sideline assessment should ever take less than 10 minutes. Right. And so if you look at something like what's happening in, in, in football, where they are not allowing subs and are not allowing a ten minute assessment. From my perspective, as someone who's been through that, it's unethical and it's inhumane. And it's not fair to the doctors. and <laughs> It's not fair to the players because we're just rolling the dice with their futures. And we're in some rush that, I, that, that no one seems to have perspective on. Uh, but you cannot do, you, we're asking doctors to figure it out accurately in three minutes is cruel and and, and is going to get people hurt.
1: That um, delayed symptoms aspect of it and, it, and forgive me if I've misunderstood this, but it makes it sound as if the idea of having temporary substitutions in football or, you know, 10 minute periods in which to examine players, it makes that seem kind of incidental. It doesn't seem to alleviate the risk of... Uh, you know, players suffering from delayed symptoms being exposed to, to these kind of dangers. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. It's, it's a question of how accurate the assessment will be. The longer you have to evaluate them, the more accurate it's going to be. Some people are always going to slip through the cracks. That's just the reality of it. And sometimes players aren't going to tell you, like you'll pass the assessment and maybe the only symptom is the headache. And the player doesn't want to tell you that until after the game, because you know, they have incentives to play so it's on some level we have to accept there's some there's going to be imperfections and the as a ex-professional whatever i was as a wrestler like the idea that it, it, you know again you stumble after getting up but your shoelace was untied but now you're pulled out and there's no way you can go back in that's also not the answer so i think we have to accept there's a risk and just find that that balance of giving the doctor as long as he feels he needs or she needs to evaluate that person. That might be a more ethical way to do it. But again, putting uh, you you know, keeping it on the field, like in the uh, the National Hockey League in America, they have to take them to the locker room so it's quiet and so they can they can focus. The idea of doing a concussion assessment in front of 80,000 people live is in 3 minutes is is just insane.
1: I'll take you back a long time to around sort of 2007 because um, it's around the time when People started to hear the term CTE. They started to understand what it meant. It also, it strikes me as being a very difficult position for, to be at the vanguard of a movement which is depicting major sports, major violent sports as being unsafe. Was that difficult to be that guy? Because um, a lot of us would have seen the film Concussion and uh, seen the sort of the the opposition Dr. Bennett and Marlowe faced, and you would have been—you were alongside him, really—in in in that movement. Is it difficult to go up against sports and fans of sports who are kind of dependent on the violence, preaching a, a message of of well everything against what they've uh, what they've enjoyed about the sport?
2: <laughs> uh, it, it was, it was difficult in the sense that a lot of people tried to convince me to go another direction with my, my life and my attention, yeah. including a lot of people that I respected and cared about and people, you know, teammates, coaches, you know, a lot of people passing messages, messages to me about leave it alone. Just cause you're soft. Doesn't mean <laughs> that you have to ruin the sport for the rest of us. I mean, it, it was, I mean, it was a culture war for sure. Um, I, you know, I was lucky that or I, I'm, I'm happy that I had the mentors I had and, and done the research I had that I, that I felt it was worth taking all those slings and arrows. But, um, but you know, you're right. It was 2007. Um, what was so the, so the, what the difference that I made is that I, you know, I learned about CTE when I was writing my book in 2006, because I found those journal articles that Bennett yeah. wrote that were so important. And what also blew me away is when you searched the internet for them, they had never been discussed publicly outside oh. of this medical journal. And that blew me away. And so when, when, uh, you know, I realized that brain donation really was going to be the key. And I pursued the brain of Andre waters in 2006, after his suicide, the deal I made with Dr. Mallow is if, if this is positive, this is not a medical journal article. First, we're telling the press, And so they can tell people this is going on because if people are shooting themselves in the head because they don't know what's wrong with them and they aren't getting help, we need to put a name to it. And so I literally like took the result down to the New York Times and said, look, this is this is happening. You guys need to talk about it. And and we were able to convince or I was able to convince them. And in January 2007, that was the first national article ever about chronic traumatic encephalopathy in football. And that, and it and it really blew open the doors and, and and made an intense next few years. Brain donation
1: or you know, requesting brain donation is, is obviously a big part of your job. Uh, forgive a, uh, an obvious question, a stupid question, but what does what do uh, what do brains allow you to do? The the what do the brains of of deceased athletes allow you to achieve in your work?
2: Yeah, the, the brain donation is really essential in, in how we've taken this argument so far. Um, so the only way to diagnose chronic traumatic encephalopathy today is through looking at it under a microscope after someone's passed away and but the the truth is that's also the only way to confirm every other almost just about every other neurodegenerative disease diagnosis like Alzheimer's disease you 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 have a clinical uh, in life set of standards that you that you use to say I think you have Alzheimer's but you're never really sure until you look and so it, A, let us prove that this disease existed, but, but really the bigger picture is it let us understand what the disease was. Why you know why is it happening? Where is it happening? How is it progressing over time? Who does it affect and why? We're starting to learn about genetic risk factors. We're starting to learn about exposure risk factors. Uh, how, uh, we, we've learned that how long you play is, might be the primary driver for whether or not you get CT in football players. Um, We're we're identifying ways that we might be able to stop it so that will lead to eventual treatments. We're identifying ways we might be able to diagnose it in living people. We're going back to their scans when they were alive so we can identify what was different about them. So, I mean, brain donation is really what everything is being built on. All the clinical work and all the other stuff is built on understanding what exactly happened when you uh, study under a microscope the, the hundreds of regions of the brain to really get an idea of all the proteins that are falling apart, all the processes that are happening after trauma. So it's it's exciting science, and we're very lucky that um, you know there are some really terrific neuropathologists we partner with, led by Anne McKee, who are, are just changing everything we know about this disease. You
1: mentioned a few instances where athletes have requested that their brains be donated. What is it like to go to the family of someone that's passed away, and often in really awful circumstances after a you know prolonged period of suffering or something terrible occurring what is it like to make that phone call and have that conversation
2: it's as bad as you think
1: yeah how do you even start it how how do you how do you even begin to talk to somebody about something like that
2: uh how do i or how did i begin at the beginning at the beginning when you when it was still new because at
1: the moment i mean if you picked up the phone people know who you are because they know what you stand for and they know that what you're trying to achieve is good But in the beginning, as per, you know, the the people that accused you of trying to ruin sport in air quotes, that must have been extremely difficult.
2: Yeah, it was. I mean, I tried to, uh, you know, I only did I only ended up in this role because no one else would do it. And it it only it started, you know, oddly, like when Andre Waters passed away, I didn't think I'm going to get the brain and have it studied. I called the medical examiner who had the brain in his possession, and I tried to convince him to do the study and he refused. And it was, uh, and I I could not convince him that CT could have had anything to do with why Andre waters was dead, but I sent him a whole bunch of uh, articles and I, I I pursued him even after I knew Andre waters was buried because I just wanted to know that I was right. And that I could convince a doctor, like, if you actually look at the science, this is very plausible. And so, uh, the doctor actually told me, you know, again weeks after waters was buried, look, I finally got him on the phone. He said, "I don't necessarily believe it, but there, since there is some science, if you can find somebody to study his brain, I'll let you know that I did keep some of it per protocols in the state of Florida." And I was like, "Whoa, I didn't know this is a thing." And so he said, "But you have to get the, his mother's permission, and just you know, she's an 88-year-old widow." And I was like, "Oh, geez." And so I, I tried to ask Dr. Malo to call, and he wouldn't call. And that's how I ended up being the person to call. Is I just said, "Oh well, someone's got to call." So I called. And of course no one answers the first few times and then finally someone answered and luckily it wasn't his 88 year old mother, it was one of his, Andre's sisters. And they heard me out. And then they put another family member on the phone and they heard me out and they said, well, send us some stuff, let us do our research on you. And thank God they were just the most generous family with their time and they thought, they understood why I was doing what I was doing. They knew, they learned about my history and they said, you know, we trust you. Um, we'll, re, we'll release the brain to you and that, and, Thank God the Waters family was so wonderful, or else I never would have called anybody again. And then, you know, families just turned out to be so much, so generous about this because I think so many had suffered so badly they were appreciative that someone was trying to figure out what happened. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A -a one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Chris, when you hear interviews with former players, um, I was watching a documentary on SBN um, about the 85 Chicago Bears, and at the end of it, Jim McMahon, they quarterback is talking about his life now and the difficulties he experiences and ultimately suffering so my question would be if you're in this situation if you're a product of professional sport at a time before this new science before the realization about the dangers of concussion what comforts are there what ways are there to alleviate your symptoms and to, to make your life a little bit easier? Or, or are these people just doomed to suffer until they pass away?
2: Yeah, that, it's, it's very complicated messaging. Uh, because on the one hand, you know, and especially at the beginning, we spent a lot of our time focusing on the horrors of this disease publicly because we know it's entirely preventable. And, and I was really focused on motivating people, especially if their kids are playing sports or the governing bodies of sports, people making the rules, or even the athletes themselves to change their behavior so they don't end up here. And you know, we, everything we gave was accurate, but it did emphasize these terrible stories. As people started to become aware that they might have CTE, um, we realized what a stress that was on them. And so when we talk to living athletes who are done with getting hit in the head and now don't know what their future is going to be, we focus on different aspects of CT, one being that experiences are very different uh, and, and very heterogeneous. So we know about the horror stories, we know that people's lives fall apart, but there's also a whole group of people whose brains we've studied who had the disease, but if you look at how it affected their life they were they, they lived into old age they were successful they had families they i mean eventually things started going haywire um but but not in the you know, the spectacular ways that we we hear about in the press and so we try to say look even, cte is not your destiny well you know, just having the pathology will not is not the final word on your life there's all sorts of other things going that, that are that uh, are included in those outcomes, and so we talk to people about brain health and everything they can do to to protect everything they still have. If they, we talk to them about how important family support is, how important medical treatment is and support is. We can't stop the disease, but we can treat all those symptoms, so you still can work and you still can function and you can still live a happy life. And so we focus. You know, we we try to emphasize that you know, we don't know what your future is going to be. And a lot of people do very well. So let's work on making sure. And again, I fall into this category. I probably have it, but I'm focused on you know, let's let's do the best we can with it and not let it derail my life. And then the last thing we remind him is you may not actually have CT. You may think you have those symptoms, but they could be related to something else. So do not get focused on this as your destiny.
1: My follow up question is going to be about your own situation. Obviously, you described you've, you've taken dozens and dozens of to head. ahead. Um, you've been hit in the head with a steel.
2: Chair.
1: Thousands and thousands. Yes, thousands and thousands. <laughs> OK, well, that's what are those chairs actually made of in wrestling? They're not those steel are, those chairs, are like
2: standard chairs uh, okay it, okay it, it, there's um there's a way you're supposed to swing Slightly them. off and, topic and, but you know yeah. i have to ask <laughs> there's an art to it where you're not oh, supposed okay. to be at risk but while i was wrestling we had forgotten about that and we were just hitting each other in the head with chairs for real which was a terrible idea
1: i mean it sounds like a terrible idea i, I mean but i how do you deal with it on a day-to-day basis because i i, I take what you're saying i i you know that you're that just having concussions doesn't create the sort of death sentence towards CTE. But how do you keep telling yourself that if you're if you if you still suffer from headaches and um, presumably or a raft of other symptoms, how is it how difficult is it to get to a mindset where you just live your life rather than worry about this this thing this impending thing that's in your future potentially?
2: Well, I, you know, you sort of got to flip that switch and, and look. I look at it from the perspective of you know what we're all going to die, <laughs> yeah, know, okay. of something. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, getting hyper-focused on what's going to kill you is not, uh, is, is not a good way to live. And so, um, I, I, I am thrilled at how I, like, I feel good today. I feel... Dramatically better than I did 15 years ago. I'm happy to have what I have. I'm happy to have a family. I've got two young kids now. I've got to live a long time for. So I'm I'm focused on living the healthiest life I can. I'm I'm, I'm trying you know I'm losing weight. I'm, I've stopped drinking. Like I, I I'm focused on i hey, doing that, everything Chris. I can. That's not control. about concussion.
1: I'm 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 losing weight too. Like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well because well because what we tell people is look if you if you You know keep up with the heart health is also brain health and yeah if if you don't take good care of yourself you'll get you'll have vascular problems in your brain that will accelerate whatever's happening with ct and and your function will disappear even earlier so i'm trying to control what i can control but no i I, i've just come to terms with you know i'm fine thinking about and dealing with death every day and and (laughs) i'm uh I guess I've just uh, I'm okay with it. I've accepted this this role, and I've accepted you know what may come may come. But right now, I'm I'm thrilled about where I am. Do you have a
1: perspective on where the UK and to a broad extent Europe is in the in their response to concussion? Because we do seem to be a couple of decades behind the US, and certainly in terms of our awareness and our procedures and protocols. Do you have a vantage point on on where we are? In relation to where we actually need to be.
2: Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I know I noticed that. Uh, so I spoke at Parliament in 2014, um, and w- with a number of advocates. And I, I guess I made the comment. Someone recently brought up. I said, "You guys are six years behind us." Yeah. And right now, you're having that conversation. Uh, I would. I hoped you would eventually have. So I guess I nailed it. You have the chance now to create the reforms that we did. And and I hope and I'm glad you're talking about it. And I hope you don't. I hope you don't lose it. I hope you succeed. You're you're still ahead of the rest of Europe. Like, it's very clear that this, the people uh, that are changing on this are English-speaking countries because they're reading our news. And, you know, Australia's changed rapidly, you know, and now the UK's changing rapidly, Ireland's changed, South Africa's gonna be changing soon, Canada's changed. So there's great hope, you know, you you'll be in a much better position Soon, but you're gonna, you gotta you gotta get over the top of the mountain now, right? All these all these uh, football legends coming forward with dementia and their families is is heartbreaking, but it's necessary. And now you gotta you, you gotta go to the the people in charge and and force them to change, whether you have to embarrass them, whether you have to use legal avenues, but you know it's it's just it's inhumane to tolerate the abuse of athletes and, and and the damage it does to their families. And uh, yeah, time to draw the line in the sand.
1: Yeah, I'm presuming your perspective is, because whenever, I mean, some of the obviously, um Stiles passed away very recently. Uh, Bobby Charlton was revealed to be suffering from Parkinson's disease. Um, What usually gets said um, by people who don't really want to confront this truth is, oh, it's a different era. They were playing with a a football that was the kind of the weight of a medicine ball. It's different now. It's different now. It's different now. Presumably your message would be, yeah, you still got to take it seriously. You can't just brush things under the carpet like that. The
2: ball issue is is garbage yeah like the the studies have been done to show the energy to the brain is still the same and in fact i was thrilled to see dr willie stewart recently Mm -hmm. post that there are actually more headers in the game now than there were back then and and that's independent of how much training is going on because i'm sure it's it's more now than it was then so no i i mean in football everybody did this too we said all the helmets weren't as good oh the the tackling was different it all turns out to be nothing it's (laughs) it's yeah. it's just getting hit in the head over and over again is bad for you and even if it's a, you know i i expect things to frankly be worse in the future based on the way the direction sports have gone
1: okay, And with it we'll say we personally because i i um i gave up playing sport entirely because of concussions um i didn't play at any level or anything anything significant but i you know had four or five quite bad ones and um I gave up because of work of, of the people like you. It's interesting because I I know a lot of people um, in that same situation. When we were growing up, um, you know, you, you'd have a concussion on a Saturday after you played. Monday morning, you go into a lesson at school and you couldn't read. And it was funny. People would laugh, and you'd laugh, and you'd be like, "Oh, you know what? I best, you know, I'll get the lesson off now because what's the point of me being here?" And you know, I've got headaches, and uh, you know, I, I only remember about ten minutes of that game. Isn't that hilarious? And um, it's amazing it's encouraging i i do completely accept that um that uh, there's an awful long way to go but it's very encouraging that that a lot of people like me that just go oh well it's just amateur sport nonsense that isn't really worth doing with so you know i'll go and live the rest of my life and that feels like a really significant change in a in an amateur culture and that that's that's a uh, as a huge accolade, Chris, and it's just um, it's something we should be very, very grateful for.
2: Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I do remember back in, again, that first month in 2007, after the Andre Waters story, I, I convinced a former NFL player to take his story public about how much he was suffering. and And what we talked about there is we just want to give people a choice. Neither yeah. he and I did not have a choice. We ruined our brain for nothing. And uh, I'm glad that, that uh, you are at least in control right now.
1: Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for your time. And just uh, on a final note, um, if anyone has any questions about uh, concussion or, um, you know, preventative measures or just wants to educate themselves on the issue, where should they go?
2: Concussionfoundation.org. Concussionfoundation.org. Uh, we'll tell you everything you need to know.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Chris. All right. Thank you.